You're listening to ReachMD, and this is Lipid Illumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Brown, and joining me today are Dr. Harold Bays, Dr. Matt Ito, Dr. Carl Oranger, and Dr. Kevin Mackey, all of whom participated in the National Lipid Association recommendations for the management of lipid disorders. I'm really thrilled to be able to have several guests today to discuss the implications and the rationale for the National Lipid Association's recommendations. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you very much for joining us. I think we'll start with Dr. Matt Ito, who's the current president of the National Lipid Association. Matt, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what were these recommendations for those people who didn't have the privilege of attending? You know, what was the goal? What were they? And uh, tell us about the inception of the idea in the National Lipid Association. Yeah, that's a great question, Ellen. Thanks for having us. Really, the goals of these uh, recommendations are to uh, a more individualized approach to lipid management. Uh, many of our members were confused with the new ACCHA guidelines in that they really identify uh, large uh, benefit groups for statin therapy. And so our goal was to really individualize uh, the management of patients because the patient, when they sit in front of you, are, are not necessarily falling into these broad four uh, statin benefit groups. And so the goal here was really to come up with uh, some recommendations for clinicians to manage patients that or on an individualized basis. So can you explain to the audience what do you think the role of the National Lipid Association was here? The, the broad-based AHA-ACC guidelines were definitely a review of the literature, and there's been a lot discussed about the type of data that they reviewed. And, of course, a certain amount of pride, I think, in you know reviewing randomized clinical trials and high-quality meta-analyses. So what did you feel was missing from that that, the, that your new recommendations are going to address? Yeah, so that, that's a great question, Ellen. And I, I think the ACCHA did a very nice job uh, analyzing uh, randomized controlled trials, mainly with uh, statin therapy. And, uh, but um, they did not consider other levels of evidence, so epidemiologic trials, uh, genetic studies, in vitro and in vivo studies as well. And so there's a lot of data out there that gets ignored if you just look at the randomized controlled trials. So I think, you know, you come up with different conclusions based on the type of data that is analyzed for coming up with guidelines. And so the National Lipid Association felt that we could not ignore a hundred years of data that uh, shows cholesterol really is the root cause, or the, or the lipoproteins that carry cholesterol are the root cause of atherosclerosis, and that uh, much of the data points to lower is better, and that goals are important. And so we took a different strategy uh, in an effort to help our members and other practitioners be able to manage patients in a way that we think uh, considers 
cholesterol goals and cholesterol into the equation and not just the intensity of which the treatment is given to a particular patient. All right. Thank you so much, Matt. I'm going to turn the discussion to another member of the uh, writing group for the NLA recommendations, Harold Bays, who uh, is uh, the medical director and president of Almark Research Center in Louisville, Kentucky. So, Harold, you know, uh, if if I asked you to kind of summarize those issues that were different in the NLA recommendations and how they might either complement or refute uh, the AHAACC recommendations. Could you give me your thoughts on that? Uh, sure, and also thank you, Alan, for ha- having us all here today. Uh, first off, I'd like to say I think that there's more that uh, binds us together than sets us apart, and I think that needs to be straight up front. This isn't uh, one uh, organization versus another organization or one guideline versus another res- recommendation. Uh, I think uh, most all of us believe that an increase in cholesterol level is a bad thing. I think we all believe in patients, particularly who are at atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk, that lowering the cholesterol is a good thing. And I think if you look amongst all the guidelines, uh, there is uniformity in that sort of concept. The differences, the you know, the differences that do exist are just, you know, they're, they're, they're differences. I think uh, uh, Dr. Ito said it uh, exactly right. I think they're differences based upon uh, how did you interpret the information? If you interpret it on a population basis, then you're going to come up with one set of guidelines. If you say, well, we think there's all types of evidence out there. There isn't just randomized clinical trials. There's sometimes when you see a patient, they don't fit into the paradigm of that, that controlled clinical trial. Sometimes they fit, you know, the best evidence that you have, they fit into the post hoc analysis of those clinical trials. So to my sense, uh, one of, uh, of what has been trying to be done here that you might consider being a difference would be that we're really trying to get to help our clinicians and help our patients who have their own individual presentations. And I think that these recommendations allow for a more broader context in treating of the patients. Another difference might be, uh, and again, the National Lipid Association is kind of unique, I think, that it is, truly is a bottoms-up organization. I mean, when you heard Dr. Ito, you know, maybe he didn't come out, but it's like the members were not just asking for this. They were demanding this, okay? They wanted this out there uh, because they, they thought it was important because it's in the best interest of the patient. And one of the things that uh, a lot of the members really wanted to gravitate towards was, it was an, a better emphasis on the non-HDL cholesterol. Now, non-HDL cholesterol is the cholesterol carried by all the lipoproteins except for the high-density lipoprotein, or the HDL. And, uh, and I can tell you, you know, we took a vote. We took a vote, and, um, and boy, the, the, the membership of the National Lipid Association was very much behind, uh, you know, trying to emphasize the importance of the non-HDL cholesterol level because it includes those patients with elevated triglyceride levels, which is just so common in clinical practice. So in totality, I would say, I would echo what Dr. Ito said, is that Maybe by including all sources of evidence, we give a little bit more context to the individualized care of patients. So that would be number one. And then number two is, and this is going to be a challenge, I think we all recognize, is a greater emphasis on the totality of cholesterol carried by atherogenic lipoproteins. And I think that that's also might be considered to be a difference. 
Thank you very much, Harold. I'm going to go to Dr. Kevin Mackey now. Uh, Kevin is president and chief science officer at the Midwest Center for Metabolic and Cardiovascular Research and uh, a statistician par excellence. So, Kevin, I'm going to ask you the question that I'm sure our audience is asking. How does non-randomized trials and observational evidence fit in as someone who deals a lot with evidence and uh, what do you feel the additive benefits of, of the document that's being developed by NLAR when it comes to incorporating that data? Sure. We've had a lot of information from observational studies that, in our view, needs to be considered. And our interpretation is also that the results from the randomized clinical trials are generally consistent with those from observational studies that have shown a log-linear relationship between the level of atherogenic cholesterol, that's LDL and non-HDL cholesterol, and risk for disease. And we think that statins, which are very effective drugs, mainly are working by lowering the level of atherogenic cholesterol. And so when we go to randomized clinical trials, they're often done for other purposes than to test the hypothesis about treating to a target uh, level of atherogenic cholesterol. And so we have to interpret the observational evidence in light of what we know from clinical trials. And our view is that the clinical trials generally support the concept that lower is better. And we believe that uh, using additional therapies, for instance, to reach target levels of atherogenic cholesterol is justified based on randomized clinical trial data in part and also on observational studies, which we feel are generally consistent with the concept that lower is better, and uh, that's one of the main differences between our recommendations and those from the ACC AHA in that they did not feel that there was sufficient evidence to support target levels or goal levels of atherogenic cholesterol. And we think that combining the information from observational studies and randomized clinical trials, that there is sufficient support for that uh, use of goals. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm Dr. Alan Brown. Joining me are Dr. Matt Ito, Dr. Kevin Mackey, uh, Dr. Harold Bays, and Dr. Carl Oranger discussing the new uh, lipid recommendations that are in process uh, at the National Lipid Association. So, Kevin, before we move on to Carl, I want to just, uh, you made a comment that, you know, I've heard people ask about, which is the rationale for the design of clinical trials. So, you know, even though we obviously recognize the benefit of industry-sponsored trials, sometimes they are designed in such a way to get approval of a given medication or to show a, a benefit of one medicine over another for, for marketing purposes or, you know, often in the best interest of the patients. But is that a dilemma when you're trying to review randomized trials to try and answer a clinical question, like, uh, you know, is lower better? Exactly. The clinical trials are designed for purposes other than to answer 
the most important clinical questions. They are generally uh, designed to get approval for a drug or an indication for a drug that's already approved. And so because of that, they're designed with a different purpose. And as a result, they don't always answer the questions that we would most like to have answered. And unfortunately, we have a limited number of trials and a limited set of populations studied, and the clinical trial data will not be complete in terms of the patients that have to be treated, and so we have to extend beyond the clinical trial data often and make inferences based on the best available evidence, uh, which is sometimes subgroup analyses and pooled analyses and, in some instances, observational studies. Okay, next I want to turn to Dr. Carl Oranger who's associate professor at University of Miami and on the executive committee of the National Lipid Association as well as part of this writing group. So, Carl, is there anything good we can say about the AHAACC recommendations? I mean, they have been embraced by many, and uh, what I hear from you all is that you're incorporating additional evidence, but you really haven't said anything negative about the approach of AHAACC. So I wonder if you can start with what you think we should take away from that effort uh, done by many of our colleagues, and and then I'll ask you a few other questions since you're such a deep thinker. Alan, thank you uh, once again for inviting all of us here. I think that the evidence review that was was, um, accomplished by the ACCHA panel uh, and working groups were wonderful in that they provided a very critical and necessary review of the current literature. Uh, but the current literature that was used was it was a narrow view. And uh, our perspective was that there's probably a wider uh, variety of information that needs to be considered in making clinical decisions. You know, uh, when you think about it, this type of, a, of an analysis is, is really an outlier uh, for, for the rest of the world. For example, the International Atherosclerosis Society... Um, the European Society of Cardiology, different groups have considered the body of evidence, the entire body of evidence, rather than simply limiting their view to randomized controlled trials. So our view is consistent with that of the international community and, uh, in a sense, makes one consider that the 2013 ACCHA guidelines uh, were, were really a, a more narrow view of a process that we know is broad. So with that said, uh, they were following the Institute of Medicine recommendations on how to do guidelines, which theoretically everybody would, if everybody adopts those, they'd be doing a similar type of a project to what AHA and ACC did. Uh, Do you have any thoughts about the Institute of Medicine recommendations on how to do guidelines? Uh, Is this misguided, and is this better to be done to gather the, the absolute knowledge? Uh, should guidelines have expert opinion? Well, you know, you know, somehow expert opinion tends to be relegated to a very low level uh, by many people, particularly so these days. And yet, when we want to know how to take care of our patients, we turn to our expert colleagues to synthesize information that has been uh, that has been developed in clinical trials. Remember, most of us don't take care of patients who look like clinical trials. Most of us take care of patients 
who have multiple comorbidities, they have other issues going on, can they afford the medication? What is their attitude toward the medication? How do they feel about the idea of taking lifetime therapy for something that doesn't hurt? And um, while the ACCHA guidelines do recommend interaction with the patient and engaging the patient in discussion, our focus is really to put the patient at the very center of that paradigm. We want patients to interact with us from the very beginning. We realize that we're dealing with individual patients, not with groups of patients. We're not de dealing with buckets. We're dealing with people. And we really feel that uh, the clinician also must not be left behind. Clinicians have been managing these patients for years primarily by counting risk factors. And counting risk factors is an important part of what we have advocated. Uh, we ask physicians to first look are your patients in the highest risk groups? If they are, those patients by and large need to be treated with moderate or high intensity statins. Are those patients in the lowest risk groups? Those patients by and large need to be treated with lifestyle therapy. But are those patients in between, those who have two risk factors, what do you do? And that's so often the doctor's dilemma. We're recommending that there are a variety of tools that doctors can use. It's not just Framingham risk. It's not just the pooled cohort equations. You might want to look at lifetime risk, as advocated by uh, uh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones. You may want to uh, advocate the use of various biomarkers, and different clinicians are familiar and comfortable with different biomarkers. Those clinicians can continue to make those decisions that they think are in the best interest of their patients. So let me ask you all, and anyone can tackle this. I mean, I was struck when I read the AHAACC guidelines that despite the absence of goals, there was a certain beauty in the simplicity. I've always felt that the number of pages in the guideline is inversely proportional to implementation. So uh, as I looked at it, I thought, well, if everybody goes on a moderate or high-dose statin based on their risk, you know, based on experience from interventions over the years, you know, some systems of just starting people in large populations. A fair number of people end up at their goal, you know, somewhere between 60 and 70 percent. So is there some beauty in that? And then as we get down to the more individualized lipid approach that uh, the NLA is advocating, how do you tackle the issue of implementation you know, as you add some layers of complexity? So, Well, that's a Great question, Alan. And first, I'd like to address the fact that I think the ACCHA, you know, really helped in terms of identifying, you know, the four groups of patients that will benefit from statin therapy. So, so that is a very good thing. But we do know that patients who are put on statin therapy in the clinical trials still have residual risk. In other words, even though they're on statin therapy, many of those patients still go on to have other vascular events. So I think what we do in our recommendations, the NLA recommendations, is that we, we really primarily are targeting non-HDL cholesterol. And non-HDL cholesterol, if you look at the, the clinical trials, uh, seems to be a better predictor of residual risk. So by using non-HDL cholesterol as a target, we're hoping that we'll also uh, target the 
uh, patients that are maybe on stand therapy but are still at residual risk, and by further lowering their non-HDL cholesterol, we might be able to get to some of that uh, residual risk. In terms of implementation, simpler seems to always be better in terms of implementing any process. But I think, you know, uh, you, you can't forget everything else there. And uh, if you make things too simple, is that really helpful to the patient's risk in the long run? We, we don't know the answer to that. But, but I think if we continue to focus on what the root cause of atherosclerosis is, and also considering the other risk factors that contribute to this, smoking, hypertension, I mean, throwing a statin at a patient who is smoking two packs a day when you can get them to stop smoking is more important than putting them on a statin. So, so I think, you know, we take a more uh, comprehensive approach to the management of these patients rather than just being statin-centric. Yeah, so I, I was fairly gratified in reading the AHAACC document that it said for people who don't fit the data that we evaluated, consult a lipidologist. And, and what I think is the strength of all of your efforts, I'm going to throw my own opinion in here briefly, is that there's going to be a document to go to when uh, people don't fit the, the trial evidence or what was recommended by the broad swath and there'll be an additional resource for people to get those answers. And I know that's been a gargantuan effort, so I, I certainly congratulate you on that. Harold, go ahead. You yeah, Alan, I, I actually want to go to your point because I think it's spot on. You say, what about simplicity? You know, that, well, maybe in some aspects that the, and certainly in some aspects, the ACC and AHA, you know, guidelines, the simplicity was a major, you know, I think benefit or, or move forward. But I think there's aspects of the National Lipid Association recommendations that I believe in some ways are even more simple. So say, for example, the utilization of the risk scores. Uh, I think scientifically they're very interesting. But I think our, our, you know, the membership and you know, surveys that have been done have suggested rarely does anybody actually do the risk scores. So one of the main emphasis of the National Lipid Association recommendations is to say, you know, if you're assessing your patient on the basis of the number of risk factors that you see, I mean, Dr. Edo said it best, this is a, a, a face-to-face encounter with a human being. I mean, uh, Dr. Oranger said the same thing. This is a person. Okay, so if you're in that face-to-face room and you're talking to a person and you see all these multiple risk factors, I think it is perfectly reasonable to think that you can make a, a judgment as to their atherosclerotic risk. Now, we give some suggestions as to what that risk may be, but I think what we're trying to say is it's okay to count risk factors, that that's a perfectly acceptable way to practice clinical medicine. The other thing with simplicity is there's a box okay, in part of one of the tables that says, uh, uh, if a patient has atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or diabetes mellitus, uh, consider, okay, we're not mandating, but consider the use of a statin. What could be simpler? If you have heart disease or you have diabetes or a coronary heart disease risk equivalent, you ought to consider being on a statin. Maybe that's your first approach. Then you want to consider maybe going to goals, Dr. Edo says, 
but to your question was, you know, you were impressed with the simplicity of the ACC and the AHA guidelines, and I think we all commend that. But what could be simpler than saying the people who are at the highest risk, we're saying putting them on a statin regardless of what their LDL cholesterol. Now, we're not saying it's mandated. There may be some people with diabetes mellitus where that may not be appropriate, but you should at least consider it. And that's about as simple as I know that you can make it. All right, Kevin, you get the final question. How do you see this new set of recommendations uh, segueing with the ACCHA recommendations? I mean, obviously they're out there. There's been a lot of discussion. Uh, we have great respect for our colleagues who participated in those. And uh, the NLA recommendations are not guidelines. They're recommendations, right? And you've made that very clear. So how do you see the interplay with the AHA-ACC guidelines? First and foremost, I want to emphasize that uh, what was released this morning were draft recommendations, and we want to get input from our colleagues at ACC, AHA, our colleagues within the organization and outside of the National Lipid Association. And we think that's an important element to collect that feedback, incorporate it into the recommendations, and... I think that the focus has really been on the differences between our recommendations and the ACC AHA guidelines, but I'll emphasize something that was said earlier, which is there are many similarities, and there are some differences in the conceptual framework, but the objective is the same, to reduce risk for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, and uh, our goal is to ultimately, as the science moves forward, update these regularly, and I suspect that uh, there will be changes in both our recommendations and the guidelines from the ACC AHA over time, and uh, I think that our recommendations will allow a discussion to commence that may help move the two sets of recommendations uh, closer together in some ways and perhaps uh, in other ways further apart. So, uh, Carl, I'm going to finish with you a couple of things. Number one, during the presentation here at the NLA meeting this morning, there was a comment made that this is going to be an evergreen document and that as new data comes up, it'll be adjusted, which I thought was a valuable idea. Guidelines, uh, you know, take a while to write, and there's a lot, many years in between them, and they're done with great scientific rigor. Uh, but as we've all experienced clinical trials can come out tomorrow that change the way we think or add to the data. So, you know, how do you envision as a group of experts making a document for the NLA that is continually updated? Is that really possible? Well, you know, the beauty, Alan, of, of the NLA is that it's a diverse group. Uh, we are men, women, younger, older, from a variety of specialties, subspecialties, some physicians, some other healthcare professionals, everyone with the same goal of, of reducing cardiovascular risk. And uh, we continue to engage in dialogue. We have active um, committees that, that frequently discuss these issues with each other. We come at this from researchers to clinicians and everything in between. And the beauty of it is, is that we have those who can look at the data in a very critical way. We have those who, who think about how it applies in the academic sense, and we have those who think about how it applies in the clinical sense. Uh, for example, one of our biggest concerns here is we're advocating the use of non-HDL cholesterol. We want our 
audience to know that non-HDL cholesterol is total cholesterol minus HDL cholesterol. Simple subtraction. Easy to obtain. Can be done fasting or non-fasting. So once you've got your initial lipid profile, you never have to worry again about having your patient come back fasting. It's very, very nice for clinicians. So we want the science to mesh with the clinical work. We want the patients to actually be able to carry through a long-term plan to keep their risk as low as possible. Excellent. Well, thank you all very much. I think, uh, you know, we've got a lot of insight into the initiation of the process. Um, I know the amount of work that's been put into it and that will be required to make it an evergreen document, so good luck with that. And also a feeling for, you know, what we can take away and the beauties of the ACCAHA recommendations and yet the added expert opinion. Uh, and if anyone is going to offer expert opinion, I, I suppose the NLA is the right group to do it for uh, lipidology. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Brown. You've been listening to Lipid Illumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association. If you missed any part of this discussion, you can visit us at reachmd.com lipids to download this podcast and others in the series. Thank you all for listening. A message from the National Lipid Association. In drafting these clinical recommendations, the NLA wanted to make sure that any clinician following guidelines realizes that these are just that guidelines, and that they are to be used in a broad sense of the word. But we realize that individual patients bring a set of problems that are relatively uncommon when considered as a package. Considering only risk factors that are suitable to community-based analysis does not get the job done. Generalizations based on such data can often lead to an unsatisfactory approach to the individual patient. As such, the NLA recommendations make it clear that clinicians should assess patient risk and be able to then identify a treatment regime that gets the patient to well-established goals. While the NLA encourages adoption and use of these recommendations, it recognizes that clinical judgment and evolving evidence constantly need to be incorporated to fortify clinician approaches to patient care. For more information on the clinical recommendations, please visit www.lipid.org. Thank you.